Welcome to Breakpoints, the SIDP podcast. All speakers on this podcast have no conflicts of interest to disclose. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the latest podcast miniseries from the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists, or SIDP, as we so affectionately call it. This podcast series was supported by a medical education grant from Melinda Therapeutics, so thank you to our sponsors for the opportunity to be here today. We are getting mic'd up, or MIC'd up, we love ID nerd jokes, to talk about leadership and advocacy in antimicrobial stewardship, and I am joined by an absolutely rock star panelist who are going to share with us their real-world experiences with learning and leading effective antimicrobial stewardship. They're also going to talk a lot about how they empower new practitioners now um, and how antimicrobial stewardship leaders have empowered them, so a really exciting series. We're going to start off talking about big picture goal setting within stewardship programs. I mean, truly just how to get started and then where to go from there. We all know infectious diseases is a very exciting, challenging, and constantly evolving specialty because our efforts impact every single patient at some point. And so it can feel really overwhelming to know where to initially focus your efforts in order to optimize patient care. We hope you enjoy our content enough to tune in for episode two, where we'll focus on marketing your stewardship programs with an emphasis on how to generate meaningful data to sustain and expand your program. And then finally, we'll close out this series in episode three, discussing how to evolve as a stewardship team member and leader, enhance your collaborations, culture change, lessons learned, and sharing some of our proudest moments. My name is Erin McCreary, and I serve as an infectious diseases antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. I completed a PGY2 infectious diseases pharmacy residency in 2017, and I can't even begin to explain to y'all how much I look up to these amazing panelists that I'm joined by today for all of the things that they've accomplished in the world of antimicrobial stewardship. I've learned so much from them already, and I know daily in my job, I feel like, where do I even start? So I can't wait to, to discuss with them today. I have about a million questions. We'll get through as many as we can um, as we all work to build and sustain stewardship initiatives at our respective institutions. But I guess the best place to start of any is with introductions. So again, it's my privilege to be joined by some of the best pharmacists I know. They're all at various stages in their stewardship journeys and they all have different kind of views to share. Our first panel member is Lisa Dumko. She is an antimicrobial stewardship leader at Mercy Health St. Mary's in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You may know her from her field leading work in emergency department and urgent care stewardship initiatives. Lisa, say hi. Hi everyone. Hi Erin. I'm really excited to be speaking today um, with Libby and Jamie regarding stewardship and leadership. We're also joined today by Jamie Kiskin, who is the pharmacy manager for infectious diseases services and the PGY1 residency program director at Sarasota Memorial Healthcare in, wait for it, Sarasota, Florida. Jamie, I really have no idea how you fit in the time to be here with all of those hats you're wearing, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Aaron, and I want to thank also SIDP for putting this on. It's a great opportunity, and I'm amazed by this amazing panel that we're going to have today. Thanks, Jamie. And then last but certainly not least, our third panelist is Libby Dodds-Ashley, who comes to us from Durham, North Carolina, where she serves as the operations director for the Duke Antimicrobial Stewardship Outreach Network, which is also known as DASON. Um, she's also the immediate past president of the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists. So she just has a wealth of information to share. Libby, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Erin. And hi to all our SIDP members. I'm so excited to be here to talk with you today. 
Thank you guys so much. And I feel truly like I'm speaking on behalf of everyone who recently graduated an ID PGY2, because honestly, we just all text each other all the time or we scroll through Twitter and we're like, where do we even start trying to make an impact or use our training to take care of patients? So I guess let's start there. Where did you guys even start? Well, Erin, I can get started with that question um, because that was totally me. I've only been in my position for a little over five years. Um, So I had just finished PGY2 residency and was stepping into my current job um, as a stewardship program lead and the only ID pharmacist in a brand new created position. Um, And I think the biggest thing that actually really helped me was that I talked to my pharmacy director when I first started because he, too, was just like, what do you want to do? Um, And we decided that I needed a two-month kind of needs assessment period. Um, So my first two months, I actually didn't do audit and feedback. I took two months to really get to know the people, get to know the different pharmacists that I was working with, both inpatient and clinical pharmacists, and get to know the physicians and the other providers, the nurses that are rounding up on the floor, the infection control team, um, and really got to, you know, round in the morning, get to know people, got to round with my ID physicians. And then in the afternoon, I actually got to spend time just, you know, going through data, doing medication use evaluations, and really deep diving to conduct that needs assessment. And that two months of kind of protected time, um, if you can get it, really, really helped me to just know the lay of the land and know where the problems were and know how to get started with building the program. It also helped me to form really good relationships, um, kind of, you know, starting that handshake stewardship where I was meeting people, we were talking about ideas, um, just to start building relationships. Lisa, that's really interesting. So I had a chance earlier in my career, I moved um, from Duke and went to the University of Rochester for a time where I joined their existing stewardship program, but was taking over for someone who had really built the program and had been a longstanding steward at the facility. And even though it's a slightly different situation, I took a very similar approach. You have to go in and get the lay of the land and know what's already in place and then what potential opportunities might be there and where your allies are for stewardship. So I think that that's good advice no matter where you're jumping into a stewardship program. Jamie, I know that you also joined an existing program. Was your experience similar? Yeah, it was. It's it's sometimes challenging when you uh, step into a position that's already been established. I started about 10 years ago, over 10 years ago, and the program I've had here at, at our hospital actually has been in place for almost 20 years, uh, but there was uh, no caretaker for about two years prior to my arrival. So you had a scenario where you had a hospital that was familiar with stewardship, had some things in place, but then it was kind of left without a caretaker for a couple of years. And then I come in as a new grad uh, from a PGY2 program, and it's like, how do you get started? And I think it's one of the most important lessons that I tried to took to heart was to, to say, you know what, I need to be careful coming in as a new person with new ideas and new, uh, new, new ways of thinking because there's already something that's been established. There may be reasons and rationales that were put into place for why certain certain things were done or not done. So I think it's really important as a, as a new practitioner coming into an established program to first understand the why. What was the, the decision-making that went on in these decisions, right? This is a new institution. They have a different culture. You coming in have to understand that culture. I think it's also important as a, as a new practitioner being careful with that little term you like to sometimes throw up, well, back in my hospital that we trained at or back in my residency, we did it this way. Uh, so for me, it was a lot of what, what Lisa and Libby says, which is getting the lay of the land, know who your, who your players are, understand the culture of the institution, what are their needs, and then you try to bring your skill and your thought process and your ideas and how you can build them up from that point on. 
Yeah, Jamie, that's funny. When I first moved from Duke to Rochester, one of the best pieces of advice I got at the time of the move was, please don't become a Duke-we, you know, once you hit a new institution. At Duke-we, at Duke-we, and I think that's true for any place you might be moving from. <laughs> you guys, that's that's really good advice. I'm laughing because I, <laughs> I, I do that, and I don't mean to. Um, I, I find myself struggling with that because I did – especially I did my both years of residency at the same institution. And so when I started practicing and, and taking over stewardship initiatives and, and I wanted to, I had all these ideas, I'm super excited, but the only ideas I had were from one institution. And so it's really hard to, to not pull on what you know or, or not use what you know and, and to kind of, you also come in and you, you want to be competent. You want, you want to do a good job. You want to take care of your patients. And so it's, it's hard not to be over eager and, and jump in and, and to really take that time to sit back and listen. And I think I'm increasingly appreciating how, how important it is to sit back and listen. I do have a question for you guys. So we, we talked about, you know, you're pulling on your PGY2 or your first job and, and being cognizant to not always refer to that institution per se and to really appreciate different cultures at different places. How does that change if you don't have an ID PGY2? So say you may not even have residency, but say you have a PGY1 and then and now you're you're in a position and you're serving as the point person for stewardship. I think, Erin, that's actually it's somewhat common. I have a couple of friends that are in this position, and I would say the biggest piece of advice that I gave to them was actually to look into some different stewardship training programs. Um, so SIDP has a wonderful program um, that's a stewardship certificate program. Um, MADID also has a similar program and then has the portion of the program where you can actually go to the MADID annual meeting um, and get, you know, the more advanced training there as well. And both of those are great options. I've, I have friends that have done both of them and have really enjoyed each program and have gotten a lot out of them. Um, so I think that that's something that is really important you could do if you aren't ID trained. Um, the other thing I would say is just join SIDP in general because that's a great place to network with other ID trained pharmacists and non-ID trained pharmacists and really, you know, just network and see what other people are doing. Mentoring in general is just really important. So finding a mentor, it doesn't have to be another pharmacist. It can be anyone within the healthcare system, an ID physician, infection preventionist, really anyone that can serve as a mentor in that role. You're not you know, trailblazing and you know, the first person to tackle stewardship. So tap into those resources out there. There's obviously the national organizations, regional organizations, but also even people in your backyard. Think about down the road, is there another ID pharmacist that you can just, you know, connect with and pick their brain from time to time, bounce some ideas off of them. They can sometimes pull you off the ledge from doing these crazy things but give you also great pointers and tips about how to approach problems and how to engage your staff or your physician groups to say, hey, here's the better way to, to pitch these ideas. I also think it's important to get local mentors. I mean, one of my biggest mentors when I started was one of my ID physicians who he was more seasoned. He had been over here at the hospital for over 20 years. Everyone respected him. And I think that was a huge win for me to get him and, and, you know, and really understand him and him get to know me. And, and he became my champion then when we were starting to do new initiatives because he, he, he respected what I had to bring to the table and he could be our advocate for pharmacy and stewardship uh, and engaging uh, as our cheerleaders uh, with the physicians. Yeah, I love that, Jamie. That's that's really good advice. I find myself doing that, just asking people here locally before you kind of dive in and you're like, this is some egregious stewardship thing we have to fix. Just asking people here, hey, you know, what? what why do we do this? Where does this come from? Teach me about, you know, practice in in 
in this specialty ICU that I may not really know that much about because I focus a lot on ID and, and let me learn the lay of the land with there and see how I can help you and support you. And then I think probably all y'all know how much I text you guys with questions. So. <laughs> Which, Erin, I think is a great point. We're talking about, you know, non-ID trained pharmacists needing mentorship, but really everyone needs mentorship, even the PGY2 trained. Yeah, I completely agree. When I was in Rochester, I had a leadership role in the pharmacy department, so oversaw a group of clinical specialists. And we ended up changing the office layout a little bit and integrating how people work together. So we integrated the specialists with the staff office so that a team taking care of similar patients all sat together instead of specialists versus staff. And what we found is that everyone was surprised by how much these specialists who were seen as the expert in the medical ICU or infectious diseases or transplant spent time asking each other questions. And I think that's true of all of us. You know, no matter how long you practice, you're always asking questions of friends. We're always calling each other, emailing each other. I mean, look at how often questions get put on the PRNs. It's so common and I think important for people to realize is nobody has all the answers and you need to know when to ask for help. And people will really earn your respect when they know that you're willing to say, I don't know, but I know where I can get that answer and come back to them with the answer. So valuable. Yeah, that's really reassuring to hear because honestly, I ask so many questions and it at first I was really nervous, right? You're like, I have this really complex patient with this pan-resistant infection, and I want to text, you know, ID pharmacists that I know that are experts in, in gram-negative resistance, and at first you're really scared and feel awkward, and you're like, I don't want them to think I'm dumb, and I don't know how to handle this, but I find as soon as I open myself up to kind of being vulnerable, honestly, it, it made me so much better in every way. The more questions I asked, the more I realized how many things we don't have answers to and how we're all truly in this together, and we fight the same battles every single day, so I ask so many questions. Yeah, you know, and I think that, Erin, that goes for frontline stewardship as well. I can think of many examples, but one in particular where I was taking antibiotic approval calls, and during the process, we couldn't really come to a consensus on why a patient needed to continue vancomycin. And so I just kept asking, so explain to me, explain to me. And eventually the resident said, oh, you're going to have to talk to the attending. And the attending surgeon got on the phone and, you know, he was like, what, do you think I don't know how to diagnose my patient? And I said, well, I'm just, you know, confused. We're asking to extend. We don't have new diagnostics. Tell me what you're thinking. And there was a pause on the other end. And the surgeon was very kind and was like, you're absolutely right. I am really worried about this patient. Let's do a few things to figure out what's going on. And with time, not only did that team really respect me, but that surgeon ended up being a member of our stewardship team and one of our greatest collaborators. So I think once people realize you're willing to hear their thought process and take that in, it also helps you in your frontline stewardship programs to have great successes. So inquisitiveness is important. It's funny, we all probably have surgeon stories, right? So one of my, my favorite stories to tell for the stewardship perspective is our trauma team, our trauma surgeon lead who came in. We have a relatively new trauma center here at SMH, and uh, when they came on board, we started seeing increased trend usage of our drugs like mycofungin and miropenem, no surprise. And so when we did an MUE, we looked at our mycofungin use and appropriateness, and we, we brought that information to the trauma team and the trauma lead trying to tell him, hey, what's going on? Let's talk about prescribing of this medication and appropriateness. And he said, well, you know, I'd love to discuss that with you all, but I've not really been engaged in stewardship here. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, my prior hospital, I was on the stewardship team. And here I'm not. I haven't been invited. So it just blew me away that there are even potential partners out there you may not even have engaged with. And now he's on our team. So now we, we talk about appropriate indications and usage for our drugs. He's part of that discussion and is now being a champion for his team. 
out on the floor. So I think that's a great point of just sometimes having those conversations, even though they may seem awkward or maybe a group that you're hesitant to reach out to because you're worried about the negative interaction, you may end up having a positive interaction that pays dividends down the road. I, of course, have a a surgeon story as well, um, (laughs) since that seems to be the group that can be maybe the most difficult to build relationships with. So when I started at my job, we were having some issues with erdipenem being used as pre-op for general surgery. And it was one of the things on my list. And, you know, my clinical manager is like, we really need to get this under control. And I was talking myself blue in the face with the surgeons every day saying, you know, we should use something else, ANSA plus flagell, you know, anything else. And it was just getting very frustrating for me. Well, then a few months into working here, one of the surgeons asked for a pharmacist to be on their work group. They were redoing some of their um, protocols um, for early enhanced recovery, and they really wanted somebody to look at the pain medications. And I volunteered not because I love pain medications, but really because I wanted to build a relationship with some of the surgeons um, on this team. So I went to the meeting. I looked over all the pain medications, and then while I was there, you know, antibiotics were on the protocol too. And they said, you know, we should talk about this too while you're here, um, which was great. And I kind of gave them my spiel on why we should do what we should be doing. And they were just so thankful to have had somebody there to, you know, look over the pain protocols um, and the other medications that they were like, go ahead, do whatever you want. You can take erdipenem off there. You can take levofloxacin off of there. So it was just having that face-to-face contact and building those relationships in the room with the surgeons. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Pharmacists aren't just sitting in the basement all day? What? Weird. <laughs> yeah, you guys, that is so hard, though, to kind of to, to establish those relationships and, and, and build that. But I completely hear what you're saying. I always tell my learners now, you know, what they don't teach us in pharmacy school is doses. And they don't teach us what formulations things come in. But really, that's the questions you get asked all the time. And when you can be that credible person and be that source and, and, and be able to answer all those kinds of questions or help with things that maybe aren't specialty ID related, but you're just doing what needs to get done and you're proving that you are this very valuable and helpful resource, that's when it opens the door to do so many other important things. So it all matters. It really does in terms of patient care. So I love that. But okay, you guys, so we've kind of got there. Once you've started to build these relationships, encourage stewardship to, I love the concept of handshake stewardship, being visible, opening yourself up to asking questions and getting answers. Once we get there, I feel like for me, it's now it's like I need to fix a million things at once. So I've kind of assessed the lay of the land and I don't know what to do when I have an asymptomatic bacteria treatment problem and a way overuse of vancomycin problem and a penicillin allergy excessive ACE tree and AM use because I can't assess allergies problem. And I don't know what project to tackle first because I've learned all these things and I've met with all these people and now I want to fix it all. So, so what do you do first? Aaron, it's easy. You do what needs to get done first, right? Um, That's what I tell our hospitals. Um, And there is no one-size-fits-all answer. So you need to look at where your priorities are coming from. So especially if you're a new program or a newly justified position for a program, look to what the priorities are from leadership. There's usually a fairly clear roadmap that when you look at what their goals are for the year, you can see some of your projects easily fitting in there. If there was need to justify that position, you should find out what went into that justification and make sure you're taking care of that. You should also take a look at your data, listen to the data and the other people you're working with. 
I find that sometimes what you need to do is do the thing that will give you the easiest win so that you can have a success and then gain momentum with more and more people wanting to join your initiatives because they know that you're a guaranteed win for them. I completely agree with everything that Libby just said. I think, you know, especially coming into a new position, there's this huge desire to get a ton of things done at once. I just remember my first day in the office and people just knocking on my door and being like, I'm so glad you're here. This is my pet peeve. Please fix it right now, Um, which I already had some ideas of things that I wanted to get done. And this was adding even more and more to my plate. Um, So I would say, you know, you're going to keep a lot of lists, exactly what Libby said, too. Like, make sure you're focusing on things that are organizational priority and not just a priority for you or for, you know, your new colleagues. With our stewardship program, we really try and keep ourselves accountable for having only three goals a year. It's impossible to do everything in, you know, a small amount of time. A year is actually not even that long of a time. So we try and limit ourselves to just three major goals per year. Um, and lay out a plan with steps so that we can measure and also show our outcomes. So, you know, not just achieving that goal that you want to, but also making sure that you can measure it and show and demonstrate to um, your leadership, um, to your pharmacy department, to whomever, that you were able to accomplish this goal um, and what your outcomes were. So it's impossible to do a good job at a million things, but it is to do a great job at just a few things. You're going to be seen as a problem solver. You're going to be seen as somebody who's going to come in and make change and improve what's going on. But you have to be realistic with your expectations and their expectations, right? You don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. So set realistic goals for yourself. Make sure they are tied to organizational goals, department goals, as well as patient-centered goals. And then this is not going to be done in a bubble. This is not going to be done on your own. You're going to need partners and a team to tackle, whether it's asymptomatic bacteria or overuse of vancomycin. That's sometimes a system-level issue where you have multiple field folks involved. You need to figure out who your partners are and say, is this a goal for you? If not, let me let me convince you that this should be a goal for you. Uh, and then as you work together as a team, start tacking these things off. you got to start realistic, start small, but have impactful goals for yourself. And then as you evolve and move through that and start moving and tackling those each one, set new goals. And again, making sure that they're not just your personal goals, but that other people will see that as a goal as well. And they'll be more likely to partner with you to solve those problems. Yeah, Jamie, those are really good points. Do you mind if I clarify how this differs? I think right now we're kind of largely speaking on like you're the point person for stewardship and you're the stewardship pharmacist at your hospital. What? How does this differ if if it differs at all? If you are if you have a partner who's also a stewardship pharmacist, so you're on a team of more than one stewardship pharmacist. I guess I feel blessed that I actually can answer this question now. I have a partner. <laughs> Uh, so I just recently, about a year ago, had a partner who started here as my my, my co-stewardship uh, lead, and it's been huge. It's been very helpful. But as you as you realize, if you qualify for that extra FTE dedicated to stewardship, you probably also have a lot more patients that are, are being managed, or you may have additional responsibilities as well. So even though it's great to have help, I think it's important, again, to manage expectations. But now you're not just managing your own expectations. You also need to manage expectations for your team. And what can the team accomplish, you know, in a given period of time, whether it's a a monthly goal or quarterly goal or yearly goal. So it's really as a team sitting together and saying, here's our stewardship program. Here's our hospital. What are our needs as a team? And then let's divide and conquer. And it may be, again, bringing in more folks from maybe the ICU arena, the ER arena. But the two of you, if it's two of you or three of you who are managing that program, need to have a shared vision of what that looks like and what their goals are and then who are all the players you need to bring to the table. But it definitely helps to have more, but it tends to also mean that you have 
more patience or more responsibilities as well. So I think it's still about a balance. I totally agree with Jamie. I'm the only person here, but, you know, we do stewardship initiatives, not just in my hospital, but also on a health system scale. So when we are working on health system things, there are more than one of me. And it, it does, it takes a balance because, again, you can't get everything accomplished um, all at once. And then you have the opinions of many people that you're trying to balance as well. Um, and we're being pulled to do things not just for inpatient stewardship, but outpatient initiatives. So, again, yeah, you're going to have a lot more on your plate. I would love to have another person, but even with more people, you still have to stick to a few reasonable goals each year. Yeah, so I have a partner as well. I'm super blessed, but I think even between the two of us, we constantly feel like there could be 10 of us, and we still wouldn't be able to get it all done. I do love back, I think, Lisa, a while ago, you said setting a finite number of achievable goals. So I think all of us echoed that. So let's say we pick two or three goals this year that our stewardship team is going to accomplish. And we just said, even with a stewardship partner, that still is a, is a lot, right, to do it well. And again, because infectious diseases touches every single patient, you need to get buy-in from every different provider and every different specialty for the most part. So do you guys look to engage members out, outside of your stewardship team? So not just pharmacy in particular, not just stewardship in particular, you know, who else can you pull in? How do you begin to get help to get some of this work done once you've identified these goals? Is there any way you can loop in people outside of stewardship directly? We certainly do. Um, one of our main goals for last year was actually to implement some audit and feedback in some of our outpatient offices. Um, and so to do that, we actually pulled in some of our ambulatory care pharmacists. Um, we were able to send one of them to MAD-ID actually um, to present some of her work, but also to take the stewardship course while she was there. And she became actually the leader of the ambulatory care pharmacist group. Um, and then my stewardship physician and I did the educational kickoff with their offices, and they were actually the ones that were in charge of the audit and fee feedback piece um, on a biweekly um, basis and then reporting back to our stewardship team. So. It was mostly hands-off for us um, with some guidance, but they were the ones that were really taking charge of it and then using us um, as in terms of just being there for backup. Um, one of our goals for a couple of years ago, actually, too, was to get our inpatient staff more involved um, with allergy clarification for surgical procedures. And that's something that actually went really well for us, um, just trying to bolster our use of cefazolin and, you know, first-line beta-lactam therapy for patients and clarify their allergies. And so our staff pharmacists, actually were really excited about this initiative. They were excited to be more involved in our stewardship uh, processes just because they've seen some of the positive outcomes of our stewardship program already. So we trained them in terms of, you know, going through profiles to look for allergies. Um, and then they will call patients actually to clarify allergies if needed, if they can't find, you know, that the patient's already received and tolerated a beta-lactam in their profile. Um, and we've made changes to our protocol based on their feedback in terms of like hives versus rash and things like that to make it easier for them in terms of making these calls. But it's something that they're really proud to be involved with. Yeah, we've had some similar successes with this in outpatient clinics using the nurses who are helping to screen the patients perioperatively at some of our outsites. Yeah, we've worked with our nursing teams as well. This past year, one of our main goals was to do a symptom-free pee campaign for Antibiotic Awareness Week. And we worked with our infection prevention nursing team to go around to, we hit every nursing huddle in the hospital that week. Um, so myself, our IP nurse leader, and my ID physician, we went to all of the huddles. We had flyers that we hung up everywhere. We did some education. Um, and actually, the nurses were very responsive. We got a have been getting a lot of calls from them um, about asymptomatic bacteria, almost kind of like having spies up on the floor. So we thought that went really well, well as, uh, as well. 
So kind of uh, going along the outpatient theme, one of the things we did is uh, we tried to leverage our ER pharmacy staff. So I think one of the most important things is, as you probably have all heard, is that stewardship is team sport. And that the more people you have on your team, the greater the impact you have. One of the things we did back in 2012 was we implemented a pharmacist-run, uh, pharmacist culture review service in our ER and urgent care environment. So what we have is uh, all of our patients who are discharged from the ER or from an urgent care facility who have a positive culture will have it reviewed by a pharmacist. And then we have collaborative practice agreements in place that allow pharmacists to adjust antibiotic therapy in about 80 to 90% of cases using those protocols. This has helped now engage outpatient stewardship at a different level, and it's something that I've been able to give knowledge, information. We've trained and had a fantastic team in our ER who have, who feel like they have that competence and knowledge to be able to tackle these, these types of patient cases and have made a huge impact on hopefully decreasing readmissions and improving quality outcomes for our patients and again, something that the stewardship team itself, or the you know the two ID pharmacists, aren't having to manage on a daily basis because we've gotten our team into to be expanded into other areas. Yeah, Jamie, looking for creative resources to expand the team sometimes involves you know non-human resources. So I know of some facilities that have been able to tackle the problem of the now. Uh, retired Joint Commission requirement for patient education on antibiotics for all patients receiving those agents. But what we were able to do at one site is work with them to create a video that when the patients were admitted to the room, they were able to watch the video and that met the criteria for education. So non-human resources can be important. And to look for those, you just have to look at the things that are happening around your facility. I know now that we put screensavers in all of the Duke clinics that talk about the antibiotic awareness campaign facts, and that's been really well received. In fact, we've had uh, pharmacists and physicians on stewardship teams at other hospitals text me to say, hey, where'd you get these and how'd you get this done? So I know that the patients are seeing them when they come to our clinics. Isn't it funny how little things go a long way? So we're rolling out a dose optimization initiative here, and I thought I thought of everything. And then, Libby, I truly got asked, like, the week before we rolled it out, someone was like, well, you made a screensaver, right? And I was like, no, I didn't make a screensaver. You want a screensaver? Uh, So then we made a screensaver. Actually, my colleague made a screensaver because she's awesome. But I, like, I never knew such a thing was so impactful. So, um, yeah. Yeah, the, the things that catch your eye will catch everyone's eye. So, yeah, just keep your eyes and ears open. They're great ideas out there. Right. Well, guys, I think that's it. you guys have shared so many meaningful things. I can't thank you enough for your time and for this discussion. I know I've learned a ton. I hope our audience has learned a ton. Thank you to all of our listeners who have stuck with us through this podcast. Hopefully you guys are feeling as motivated as I am right now to go to work tomorrow and just keep building those systems that are improving patient care. We also hope you join us for episode two. Now that we've set our goals and kind of discussed how we did that and incorporated different members of the team, next episode we're going to discuss how to generate meaningful data to sustain your programs and to advocate for more resources. Like Jamie talked about getting an extra FTE, and once you have those extra resources, you know, how do you keep them and how do you get more and more to do more? Um, And then episode three, or my favorite part of this series, where we'll be sharing our proudest Stewie moments and all of our lessons learned. Again, I'm joined by Lisa Dumko, Jamie Kisgan, and Libby Dawes-Ashley. Thank you so much, and have a great day, everyone. You've been listening to Breakpoints, the SIDP podcast. For more information, please visit sidp.org slash podcasts.